Today's video was recorded on August 9th, 2022, and this is the fourth in our series on the Transfiguration. In today's lesson, we're going to look at the Transfiguration through the lens of mystical Judaism and a concept that's known within mystical Judaism as the Adam Kadman, or the original man. Now, this concept was known by different phrases in the first century, and the phrase that Paul uses in his letter to the Corinthians is heavenly man. So there's a heavenly man whom humanity is made in the image of, who pre-existed creation, and through whom all creation came into being. And of course, Paul is referring to Jesus. So this is going to be our main topic, and you'll see, God willing, how these things are connected. Now, just a couple items before we start. Don't forget to get the class notes. There's a link below in the description section. Those class notes will help you follow along and keep your thoughts organized. A second thing is we always appreciate it if you hit that thumbs up button, if you're watching on YouTube, or if you're listening to the podcast version, that you give us a five-star rating. This is one way you can support the ministry by helping those algorithms notice our videos and then promote them to a broader audience. And we thank you for that. Now, finally, you can also support our ministry through smile.amazon.com, and that is part of the Amazon Foundation. So the Amazon Foundation will donate on your behalf each quarter to Fig Tree Ministries when you shop using smile.amazon.com. Now, if you're not using smile.amazon, make sure you do. Because every time you shop on Amazon without using it, it leaves donations on the table for many nonprofits that would really appreciate that help. So make sure you always shop with smile.amazon.com, select Fig Tree Ministries as your donation partner, and we've included a direct link that will attach Fig Tree Ministries to smile.amazon, and that'll make it a little bit easier for you. You can find that in the description section below. So we hope you enjoy part four of the background to the transfiguration of Jesus and how we can find meaning in this event through the concepts found within mystical Judaism. All right, folks, let's get started tonight. We are going to be, this is the fourth in our series on the Transfiguration. The title of this one is The Heavenly Man. And God willing, by the time we complete this journey tonight, you'll understand a little bit more about that phrase that Paul is going to use in his letter to the Corinthians. So our background photo, we've seen this before. If you've been going through the series, this mountain is in the northern part of Israel, right on the border of Lebanon and Syria. And the mountain is called Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is the, the mountain that scholars believe today to be the mountain that the transfiguration took place on. Church tradition has placed it at Mount Tabor, a little bit to the south, but uh, scholars today point to Mount Hermon for various reasons. One of them, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, in Psalm 42, Psalm 43, they talk about Mount Hermon and Caesarea Philippi, the story that immediately precedes the transfiguration, is at the base of Mount Hermon. So, that'll be our background for tonight. We'll start off this lesson tonight with a brief review of what we've done over the past couple weeks to help bring that to the forefront of your mind. And each week, we've been starting off with something that looks like this. This is a, a, what we would call a mind map. So, a mind map is an artistic representation of all of the aspects that feed into something. Uh, it's not linear. In fact, because in this spiritual growth community, when you're on a spiritual journey, it's often represented as a little sea creature called a chambered nautilus. And that's what the background of this is supposed to look like, a chambered nautilus. And therefore, I put my mind map in the form of a chambered nautilus. It's not linear. It's like circular, and they're all flowing in a way around that transfiguration event, and they're all feeding in information to help us understand what's going on. 
So we started a couple weeks ago with Exodus 24, and that is, this is, there's two places in Exodus, Exodus 24 and 34, that the transfiguration is tying to. And very important because the first century mind, the first century Jewish mind, the, the Exodus is everything to them, and Moses is everything to them. So when Jesus shows up and does stuff, and the gospel writers write about it, they do it in a way that's pointing you back to the Exodus story, and then their actions and the writing encapsulates the meaning from the Exodus story. So Exodus 24. Moses and three named disciples ascend a mountain to see God. What do we have in the transfiguration? Well, Jesus and three named disciples ascend a mountain to have the revelation of the transfiguration happen. And then Exodus 34 was when Moses has his own type of transfiguration event where his face is radiating light. So those two are immediately going to be uh, connections within the transfiguration story. We added that through all of that, and even last week, we looked at rabbinic thought. Rabbinic thought is at the base of this because rabbinic thought uh, takes us closer to the first century Jewish thinking, particularly about the stories of the Bible. And first of all, first century thinking is Eastern, we're Western, that's different. It's even different thinking than the Greeks there in, say, Athens or the way the Romans thought philosophically. So looking at the rabbinic thought about these stories helps us understand something that's going on there in the first century. Then the last lesson we did was on a theological concept in the first century that had to do with the first Adam and the last Adam. And Paul uses this concept in both the book of Romans and in Corinthians. And the last Adam, which is in the age of the Messiah or the Messiah, is going to restore the glory that was lost by the first Adam when he sinned. And we saw that last week, that they're clothed in the glory of God, and they're radiating light. And what we see in the transfiguration, of course, is radiating light, the glory of God, through Jesus. And again, that points us back to that first Adam. And then this week, we're going to connect. We're actually still going to be inside this model of the, the first Adam and talk about the heavenly man. And that's another theological concept from the first century. So that one is right here on our mind map. And that one's going to rely, we're going to rely on some second temple period writings for that to help us understand exactly what's going on. But the, the heavenly man will come from the same verses in Corinthians as the first and last Adam. Okay, so there's a bit of review and what we're going to be doing, God willing, tonight. Okay, so today's lesson, I don't know if this should be something that we would call, what would they call it? And in, in, in a university, they might call it like a trigger warning or something. It's not really a trigger warning. But anyways, we're going to be dealing in mysticism, and particularly in Jewish mysticism. And anytime you move towards the mystical, uh, you, it's, fraught with, it's fraught with danger for, for the misunderstanding that can take place. So particularly when I'm talking about a mysticism that is Jewish mysticism, even doing an entire series on the transfiguration, you run the risk of confusion because it's mystical to an already difficult topic. I dig too deep, too fast, and there's, there can possibly mis be misunderstandings. So any mystical experience, by definition, is ineffable. You can't describe it. You know, there are scientists uh, have been studying Scientists or psychologists have been studying near-death experiences. One of the most common thing that comes from a near-death experience when the person is describing it is they'll say, I can't describe it. I have no words. The words I'm going to use 
in English to tell you what I experienced don't even come close to telling you what it was like. That's a mystical experience, very difficult to describe. So, because in a, a mystical experience, you're in touch with a reality or the reality of, the, of, the, the, of God's cosmos that's not apparent to our senses or obvious to the intellect. In fact, when we think about our intellect, and in the West, we're very intellectual in our faith. The intellect is the number one reason why we have such difficulty connecting to the spiritual realm, which, of course, the spiritual realm is mystical. It's very difficult for us to describe. Maybe you've met somebody who has a very high intellect, and therefore, because they can't solve with their intellect God, they don't believe it. Right? What's keeping them from God is their intellect itself. And so I, I bring this up because I'm, I run the risk tonight of losing some of you. I'm very aware of that. And in no way am I trying to make this too complex that somebody would get to the end of this and say, now what on earth was that all about? But unfortunately, to talk about the mystical, in any way, shape, or form, you're going to lose somebody along the way. And I absolutely don't want that to happen. And I apologize if I lose you. So there is a risk in doing this. There's, a, there's an idiomatic phrase that um, comes out of the Jewish writings that says, Woe to me if I talk. I'm paraphrasing it. Woe to me if I talk. Woe to me if I don't talk. So that's kind of how I feel like this. Woe to me if I talk, because I can, I can present something to you and inadvertently create confusion. But woe to me if I don't talk, because then I'm not sharing uh, an aspect to the transfiguration that you may be able to look at. And so that's, that's what we're dealing with. Now, if I had any goal for tonight, my goal really tonight is to show you that there is a window that exists through which you can look at the transfiguration and understand something about it, about the nature of God's cosmos, of the nature of who Jesus is, at least from the perspective, uh, it's going to be through Jewish mysticism, but from the perspective of some in the first century. That's it. I want you to know that there's a window there. So if you walk away from this lesson tonight with nothing more than, I know there's a window that I could go look through, then good. Because at some point, you can go back, you can do some reading about it, uh, you can end up coming back to the window and looking through it. And I can assure you, because this is what happens, the experience of people, is that over time, God gives you insights, right? So the first time you hear it, eh, not really sure what that was. Second time, I think I got a little bit more. Now I do some reading over here. I hear something else about it. And God eventually gives you the insight. Um, so if anything, I just want to open up that window. And again, I apologize to anybody if I lost you along the way. That's not obviously not my intention. So, okay, let's keep going then. This is going to be our main topic, is the, I, this concept, a theological concept of the heavenly man. And we find it in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. 44b to 49. Now, if you were following along last week with our lesson on the first Adam, last Adam, we're at the same verses. So, Paul is inside a, uh, he's in one metaphor, first Adam, last Adam, and then he switches a little bit to earthly man, heavenly man. Okay? So, let me just read it for you. This is starting at verse 44b, so the second half of verse 44. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last man, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. So there you have first man, Adam, and the last Adam. That's what we did in the last lesson. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. Okay? Then, verse 47, the first man was of the dust of the earth, 
The second man is of heaven. So now see Paul's switching his metaphor slightly. As was the earthly man, so are those of the earth. As is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And so we share with the earthly man, right, Adam, but we also share the heavenly man. That's now Paul's going to tell us that just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, that's we reflect something about the earthly Adam, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. And that's what Paul is going to Paul is going to encourage us to do is to bear the image of the heavenly man. Now what image are we made of? Well, Genesis says the image of God. And now this is where we get into uh, a bit of a problem here and what the mystics are going to dive into uh, is in this idea right here, heavenly man. And we'll talk a little bit about the background of that to uh, show you that this phrase was in use in the first century. Okay, so that's where we get it from. You can go back and reflect on that when you have some time. Um, okay, now, number three on your handout has to do with the paradox. Now, first of all, um, there's a book that I will link to at the bottom. It's a book on, uh, in, in Jewish mysticism, the word they use is Kabbalah. It means to receive. You're receiving the insight of the mystical from God. And Kabbalah, not the, not the Madonna Kabbalah of Hollywood, completely different. But this book is an introductory to Kabbalah written by a Jewish professor. Um, but anyways, one of the things he says is the mystics love, they live inside the paradoxes. They love to find a paradox. It's the paradox. It's in that tension of the paradox that we discover amazing things about God. Now, the part of the reason I bring that up is that Westerners don't often like paradoxes. We want things orderly, scientific, linear, so that we can solve them and put them in our spreadsheet, take them to the lab and replicate them. But of course, God isn't always like that. So it's in the paradox that we gain insight into God or the nature of reality. And you can see, Christians, you can recognize some of these paradoxes. In order to gain life, you must lose your life. In order to live, you must die. And that makes no sense, right? The, the, the world says, what? That's crazy. That doesn't make any sense at all. But the idea of giving up your life actually then, to lose your life, actually you end up gaining life, right? And it's, um, you know, very important for people to understand things about, like, if you want to be truly free, or say, for liberty to reign, then you must voluntarily accept rules or disciplines for your life. So someone who runs around and thinks, I want to be completely free and do whatever I want, ends up not free. They end up, they end up uh, in bondage. Whereas those who adopt voluntarily the disciplines or the rules of God or the rules of society can end up living a very fulfilling and free life. So there are paradoxes in the world, and of course, this one in the Bible is a paradox about the image of God. Okay, and the, so the mystics within Judaism, they're struggling with some of the aspects of God and his creation, and they're trying to solve this tension that exists, okay? So there's a couple problems that we have to take a look at. So first of all, well, beautiful painting by Michelangelo. That gap between the two fingers, between God, this gap right here, this, this gap between God and man is significant, yes? Not on that painting, but it is significant. And this is a huge problem for humanity. It's, it's a gigantic divide. And what's interesting is once you become aware of this divide and the problems it creates for humanity, you'll see it everywhere. So, okay, so here it is. So we are finite, yes? But we exist within the reality of an infinite God. 
And we can't, as a finite being, we cannot fully understand an infinite God. This does not mean you can't sufficiently know God. You can have sufficient knowledge of God. Say you can have sufficient saving knowledge of God, but you can't have total knowledge of God because we're finite and he's infinite. And so we call this, you know, people try to put God in a box, right? And then God constantly breaks that box open because you can't. You can't create a box that God will fit in. There's always going to be a mystery. One of the verses, and I put this on your sheet, is Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. And many of you already know this one. It's, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. It's like, okay, I don't know. We don't always take that seriously enough to remember that we can't fully understand the totality of who God is. You can see this in the argument that, not the argument, but the dialogue that's going on between God and Job. God eventually has to say to Job, were you there when I stretched out the heavens? And of course, the answer is, no, you weren't. So you can't fully understand everything that I've done. And one of the things that happens is that people, uh, if, we're not, if we don't keep aware of this, we will falsely believe that we have all the information. We have the total package. And when you believe that you have all the information needed, you can very easily become totalitarian. And over the course of church history, the church has at times become quite totalitarian. Because anything new that's introduced gets immediately rejected, often in the form of persecution. So this is a big problem. We have, a fi- we have finite human beings up against an infinite God. Okay, second. God by his very nature, is unlimited, and we are beset with limitations. So there's an old, um, it's like a, again, it's a, a, a mystical question. What does God lack? And what he lacks is any limitations. But we have all kinds of limitations. So we can't tell the future. That's one that just drives people nuts, right? That's why people from the beginning of time have tried to figure out ways that they can, cl- that they can clearly understand the future. Well, that's a one main limitation. We don't have all the information that we need at any given moment. So we have missteps in life because we just didn't know all the information at that moment. Those are all limitations. And when you bump up against a limitation... The sensation we get is suffering. So the, you don't know the future, you suffer anxiety. You, you have a limitation of your body, you suffer death. The next one. Okay, so God is infinite. We're finite. God has no limitations. We have all kinds of limitations. And finally, God has no image or form. But, the Bible says, and here's the paradox, we are created in the image of God. Now, how can that be? How can we be in the image of God when God has no image? How can a finite being be created in the image of an infinite being who has no image? So, you can see the problem, this tension that's building. There's a paradox here. There must be something, some aspect of God that reflects a human being. Okay? Now, one thing that to, to point out, the Bible has all kinds of warnings about making an image of God. Yes? So there's all kinds of warnings about making that image. And one of the, one of the reasons that there are so many warnings is that the moment you create an image, you immediately place limitations on God. So it's not just, hey, I have a lifeless idol out of wood. I'm expecting this lifeless idol to be able to affect the reality around me, right? 
that's kind of what we think when we think do not make an image, you know, and I agree, don't make false gods. um, But the image is deeper than that. When we create an image of God, you immediately place limitations. And in some strange way, we're projecting our own limitations onto God. And so we have to be very careful. And the mystics are very careful about reminding themselves all the time to not place the limitations on God. So one of the prayers that I will pray for myself is, God, help me not limit you through my own limitations. Let God be God and let me be me. And so we have to recognize our own limitations. It's very important to finding peace. And then you voluntarily accept all of those limitations. Because when you live fully within those limitations, you live a fulfilled life. Now, I'll give you an example because you can see it. It's all, it's all around us, right? So, first of all, this, this painting of God is a limitation. We've immediately made God an old man in the sky. And so, for a lot of people, that's how God exists. He's like an old man up in the attic, up in the sky. Every once in a while, he zaps somebody with a lightning bolt, but he's not interactive. Now, where do we get that from? Well, our our artwork is always placing God as a bearded old man in the sky. So, it's a father figure in the sky, a judgmental father figure in the sky. So, we immediately, even though those are metaphors for God, taken too far, they become, we place limitations on God. Just by the way, just so you know, looking at this Michelangelo painting, scholars think that what's going on here, because you go, what, you know, you're kind of like, what are all these uh, angels surrounding God and what are they sitting in? It's kind of like a, you know, a conch shell or something. And what uh, scholars think is that he was trying to replicate a brain, that God is in your brain. Now, whether that he meant that literally or metaphorically, but if you look at it, you know, the gray matter of a brain, if you sliced it in half, would be all the angels surrounding God. Then you have like that green sash that's going down would be like the brain stem. Anyways, just a thought as you look at that artwork. But let's say I walk up and I said, okay, okay, everybody, here's where I see God because I'm limited and I'm going to have to draw my limitations of where I see God. And I walk up and I say, this is how I see God. And of course, my my circle encompasses everything. It has all my limitations in it. And what's bound to happen when I do that? Well, the next person is going to walk up and they're going to say, no, 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 no. I see this. And then the next person walks up and says, no, I see this. And sure, we have some overlap there, but you're wrong and I'm right. And this has been happening throughout all of time about when it comes to knowing God, because what we're doing is we're placing our limitations, again, onto something that's unlimited. Even the Jews of Jesus' day were divided, and they were dividing rapidly into sects, sects of Judaism, and they would adopt one thing or another to say, this is why our belief is correct. The Pharisees believed different than the Sadducees. The Essenes separated from the temple the Nazarenes up in Galilee. Everybody believes something a little bit different. We also see this within the church, right? The eastern half of the church versus the western half of the church. You see it in the history of Protestantism. The moment Luther protested the Catholic Church, that's how we get the word Protestant, we protested the Catholic Church, then everybody began protesting each other. Well, I don't think child baptism, so we're going to do the Anabaptist movement. I think you can get in touch with the spiritual, so the Quakers are going to go. And if you look at the history of it, every time someone disagreed with another usually more powerful entity, there was persecutions. I mean, just look at the whole history of, say, the state of Pennsylvania and how they were fleeing from persecution by other Christians in Europe. Anyways, the point is we have to be very careful about, one, limiting God. But also, we have to figure out how, then, how are we made in the image of God, yet God has no image or form? How does this work? And this is exactly what they're wrestling with. 
okay? So, this is what they came up with, okay? I'm just going to, I'm going to depict this crudely, but hang with me. Just get the, get the, um, just the broad gist of what I'm saying here. So God, God has no image or form, yes? Then you have man, because Genesis 1.26 says, let, uh, let us, there's an interesting one, plural, let us, plural, make, them in, make man in our image. So man is an image of God. There's your paradox. All right, how do we solve this? Well, they said, look, there must be something as an intermediary in the heavens, right? In the ancient world, uh, the belief was that everything here on earth had a counterpart in the heavens. And so the stars, you know, when they look at the constellations, that wasn't just something out there that was representing something here on earth as well. So there must be something in the heavens that is going to then create, or the image of God is going to reflect. Okay? And this is where you get the idea of a heavenly man, a man in the heavens that when we are made in the image of God, we reflect that. Okay? So this is the big problem. What's that in, uh, intermediate step from no image to image? Okay? Now, here's what the mystics came up with. This is the uh, Jewish mystical solution. They stepped in and they said, okay, look, we get it. We're going to be very sure to recognize that God is infinite. He's unknowable in his totality. Okay? But God is infinite. How then can he make finite creation? So he has to manifest himself in some way, shape, or form into the finite world. And what they said was, when God manifests himself into the finite world, going from infinite to finite, in that creation process, what appears first is a heavenly man. That when God goes to, from infinite to finite, it looks like a man or humanity. We'll talk about the names in a minute, but Adam Kadman, that's the mystical one, the original man, that's what that means. Adam Kadman, what's the original man? Uh, our Bible, the heavenly man. Also, they called this first century the Word. We'll get we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay? So this is where you I'm I'm bound to lose people. God is infinite. He has to come into the finite. When God enters the finite, when he manifests himself into the finite, it shows up as uh humanity. So that then you move along. And now you can say, aha, humanity is now made in the image of God. It's God, but it's God in the finite. Okay? This is what we're going to look at. So, this, the, the names for this. Um, let me just go over them real quick. If you Google Adam Kadman, you'll find articles about the Adam Kadman. It's associated with mystical Judaism and it's associated with the Middle Ages, but likely stretches much further back than that. You find the same ideas in the first century. And I think Jews were always trying to solve this problem. Paul, and also another writer in the first century, uses the phrase, the heavenly man. And then we also have um, the word. The word of the Lord. And I'll show you in a minute. It is the word of the Lord that does the creating. Right? Now, what about this verse? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's how John starts his gospel. So, all of these names are pointing to the finite manifestation of an infinite God. Okay? So, 
here's their thought. This is, again, we're going back to Jewish mysticism. The infinite is moving into the finite. And what flows through the heavenly man is now everything that's going to bring creation into being. So all things were made in him and through him. Because now we're moving, again, infinite to the finite created world. And what they said was that at what comes through that is light. Let there be light. And so what you have here is God the Father, the infinite one. You have God the Son, the, the manifestation of the fullness of God the firstborn of all creation, who all things were created through. And then you get something like the Holy Spirit, the outflowing that comes out of God and the Son into the world to create the world. And that's exactly what we find in John, John chapter 1, all things through him, all things were made. Paul writes in Colossians, uh, for all things were created in him. So, it's a very simplistic model, obviously. I'm trying to take something very complex and put it into a um, simplistic model. But I hope you can see at least what they're trying to do is solve a big problem with the nature of God and the nature of man and what Genesis says. Now, let me show you a book. I'm going to put up a resource here. I'll have a link below in the description section, and it's also on the handout. Uh, if you're interested in science, quantum physics, or any type of physics, really, and you're interested in the mysticism, this is an, uh, a great book, From Infinity to Man. Now, even just think about that uh, title right there. You're going from the infinite to a human being made in the image of God. So this is from the, uh, Edward Schifrin. The Fundamental Ideas of Kabbalah Within the Framework of Information Theory and Quantum Physics. So that's one you can check out. Great resource. And you can see that's exactly what's happening, right? We start over here in the infinite, and we're moving all the way over to humanity made in the image of God. So just like the title of the book. Okay, this is the model right here. This is what we're talking about. Now, wouldn't it be great if we had some evidence of this in the first century to go along with it, to help bolster this argument? And, of course, the answer is, yes, we do. First century uh, evidence. The first one, and these are all on your handout, and I've even got some quotes from Philo uh, on your page three is, is three of his quotes. There's a Jewish scholar. Philo of Alexandria. I'll talk about him in a minute. Alexandria, Egypt. You have something called the Aramaic Targum. That's the Hebrew Bible translated into Aramaic. And then there's often a paraphrase that, that goes into that. And then, of course, our New Testament is going to be doing the same thing. So let's go in order. I'll look at the first Philo of Alexandria, Egypt. He lived 25 BC to about 50 AD, so about 75 years. He is contemporary with Jesus and Paul and John and would have been known in that Mediterranean world. And he uses the phrase, the heavenly man, to talk about God creating and who, whose image Adam is made in. And then he also uses the word. So both things are used by him in the first century, which means, and he's not using it as, let me explain what this is. This means uh, that everybody around him already had the conceptual framework. And so when he talks about it, they already understand where he's going with that. Now, I'm not going to give you, for those watching the video, if you're only watching the video or listening on the podcast, I'm not going to give you the full quote. You'll have to go to the handout. It's page three. Read the, the full quote. But let me, let me just put a couple up here, a couple short uh, sentences from Philo. Um, so the first one 
This is allegorical interpretation of Genesis 2 and 3. He says, There are two types of men, the one a heavenly man, the other earthly. Now, this is exactly what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. One is a heavenly man, and one is an earthly one. And you are what Paul is saying. Oh, by the way, you take after both of them. You're, you have a physical body like the earthly man, but oh, by the way, you're supposed to reflect the image of the heavenly man. All right, so there's that's that one right there is, is an obvious one from Philo. That's Philo. Another one from Philo is this, and he's talking about the firstborn of all creation, and look what he calls it. God's firstborn, the Word. And in Greek, the Word is logos. The Word. In the beginning was the Word, wrote John. Okay? Now he goes on to say, who holds the eldership among the angels, their ruler as it were. So we have writings from Philo from the first century. Yes? And there's another character in the New Testament that could link us closer to Philo, I think. And he shows up in association with Paul and the city of Corinth. And, oh, by the way, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, which we just read. And his name is Apollos. And what we find out, you'll have to go read these in, in the text. They're on your handout. We find out that Apollos is from Alexandria, Egypt. He's described as a learned man. He knew the scripture, the Hebrew Bible, well. And it says, he taught the way of the Lord and he spoke accurately about Jesus, even though he only knew of John's baptism. So he gets it. And surely, Apollos is familiar with Philo. Now, we also find out that Philo, in Acts 19.1, he ends up living in Corinth. And eventually, because both Paul and uh, Apollos are teaching in Corinth, there becomes a problem. And you can read this in 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, you know, it's the, it's the whole thing about Paul's like, look, some of you say that you follow Paul. Others say that you follow Apollos. Right? So they might, have, they might be looking at Jesus and have slightly different variations, kind of like what we talked about, you know, we look at the mystical and we talk about it in the only way that we can know it. And the next person walks up and says, well, I see it a little bit differently. And now you can see even in, in Corinth, during Paul's time, you get church division. Now, there's one more piece just about Apollos. If you don't know this, many Christians throughout the history of the church, like a guy named Martin Luther believed, and it was, it almost, it's like a, it's just a general belief that Apollos wrote the book of Hebrews. Now, we don't know because um, only God knows who wrote the, the, the book of Hebrews, but that was a common belief. Now, the whole point of this, what letter do we find Paul talking to folks about the heavenly man? It's in Corinthians. And so we've got a connection between Apollos from Alexandria, Philo of Alexandria, this discussion of the heavenly man. And Paul, when he talks to his audience in Corinth, they understand what he's talking about. Okay? So that's, that's one of our witnesses from the first century. Another witness. These are called the Aramaic, they're called the Targums, and they're Aramaic Targums. Why? What, what on earth is a Targum? Well, it's a, it's a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic, okay? Just like we have the New Living Translation, or the NIV is an English translation of the Hebrew and Greek, and sometimes Aramaic, into English. So, the Old Testament, in Jesus' day, the only scripture they had, the only scripture that Paul had, the only scripture that Peter had, is the Hebrew Bible, and it was written in Hebrew. And of course, not everybody spoke Hebrew around the world, not every Jewish person. So at one point, they want the Hebrew Bible translated to Greek. That's called the Septuagint. Okay? And then you also get people who speak Aramaic. 
And so in, say you get in Palestine or in, in that area of Israel in the first century, you had Aramaic-speaking people. And so you would go to the synagogue, the scroll is in Hebrew, someone would read the Hebrew, and you would have someone next to them who reads the Aramaic, so the Aramaic-speaking people. And these are called the Targums. And what's really interesting, and this is very helpful to doing biblical studies, because it helps us understand what the community thought about a particular phrase in the Hebrew Bible, because often when they take the Hebrew to Aramaic, they put it in a paraphrase. Now, this is exactly like the New Living Translation. The New Living Translation of the Bible is a contemporary paraphrase of the sentences. The King James is a more literal structure of the sentence, so it can be sometimes awkward to read. But very often in the New Living Translation, they're paraphrasing. And that's what they're doing. And when they paraphrase, it's like adding commentary, but it's commentary that the community accepts as biblical interpretation. And your gospel writers are influenced by the Targums. There's a couple verses that are very important to the gospel writers in the Targum that you don't find in the Hebrew. So don't dismiss them too easily. And one example from the Targum, the Aramaic, is when you get to Genesis 1 and God is creating, it's different in the Aramaic than in Hebrew, and it has to do with the Aramaic word for word. The word, and the word in Aramaic is a word, memra, okay? So, the word, Aramaic, memra. In Greek, the word for word is logos. In the beginning, the logos was with God, and the logos, or in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. That's John writing in Greek. But in Aramaic, Memra, okay? So I put this on your sheet so that you would have it and you can read it. This is a, from one of the Targums, and this is Genesis 1.1. And just notice how they paraphrase from the Hebrew. It says this, In the beginning, with wisdom. Now why add that in, with wisdom? Where are they getting, in the beginning, with wisdom? Where are they getting that from? Now that's obviously part of the paraphrase. But with wisdom, because that's what Proverbs tells us. Wisdom was there in the beginning, when the creation was happening. Ah, there must be some other aspect of God that's in the creating business. In the beginning, with wisdom, was the word, Memra, of the Lord. And the word, Memra, of the Lord, created and perfected the heavens and the earth. So you can see it's a paraphrase. But the point is, the Word, and the Word, Memra of the Lord, shows up hundreds of times in the Targum. Okay? It's like an aspect of God that does the finite creating. Now, this is, uh, I'll show you a, ref uh, a reference. Again, I'll put the links in the description section below. This is the Jewish Annotated New Testament. Great resource. Fabulous. Can't say enough about it. Resource. Really, just, it's only the New Testament. But there are a ton of footnotes, and they'll connect you to all of the writings that happen from not only the Old Testament, the intertestamental, the rabbinic writings. I mean, it's a, it's a treasure trove of resources. Also, you want to get the second edition, by the way. Make sure when you do this, if you go on Amazon, make sure you buy the second edition, because in the back of this uh, Bible, the New Testament, are all kinds of essays, and the second edition has more essays. Great essays. They talk about the history, the, the Second Temple period, um, the, the, how religion is developing over those times, the history of, the, of, of that part of the, the world. And in that Bible, in this, there is a, an essay by an, an author, uh, he's a scholar at uh, Berkeley, Daniel Boyron, and it's called Logos, a Jewish Word. 
John's prologue as Midrash. Now, we'll deal with Midrash in a couple weeks, but he's going to write about this idea of the use of the word and how, how others wrote as well. So you can find a lot of what I'm telling you today in, in this essay. Also, by the way, I have a link on your handout to a website called Academia. You can sign up for that for free, and this is available because scholars will put their essays or research papers that are normally inside of a uh, maybe a, a certain publication, and they'll release them to academia so people can read them. There's also a second article, bottom of your page, by Daniel Boyerin, and that one is available straight through the internet, and that's about Logos theology, okay? So you have those links. These are great if you have a chance to read them. But what's the point? What are they getting at? Well, they're getting at this idea of a heavenly man, something up in the heavens that is an aspect of God, divine, and yet is in the, phys- is in the finite. Okay? It's how, it, it, how we create. And the way that the, the uh, mystics describe this, and this is Jewish mystics describing it, the heavenly man, pure light. What do we see at the transfiguration? That's what Jesus is revealing the nature of who he is. And this is what I think. So Philo says, this heavenly man that you see on your screen here, oh, that's just an idea. Paul and John, they show up and they say, no, no, no. That is not just an idea. It is the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He is the heavenly man. Why? Well, he's pure light. Second, he pre-exists creation. It's through this, it's an aspect of God. And, and I hope you're hearing, this is the beginnings of what would come to be what we know as the Trinity. Now, we don't have time to go through the history of the Trinity, but the Trinity takes a couple hundred years for Christians to hammer out what we know today as the doctrine of the Trinity. It does not happen in the first century. But these, this is the, uh, these are the beginnings. And, and by the by the 4th century and the 5th century, the Christians are hammering out now a more uh, solid doctrine of the Trinity, and there's tremendous opposition between Christians and Jews. And so Jews go one way and say, no, 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 there's only one God. We've never believed in that, you know, having multiple aspects. And the um, Christians make it decidedly Christian. So the, the heavenly man pre-exists creation. All creation comes through him. And we're created for him. We'll read that in a minute. The heavenly man is a blueprint for humanity, right? Just like an architect needs a blueprint, God creates a blueprint. And we then are created in his image. And so when Paul wants you to transform to be Christ-like, it's because that is what all humanity is going to be set against. He's the archetype for humanity. The heavenly man is considered incorruptible, sinless in a way. And this is really important to understand about the nature of Jesus, because he shows up as the perfect archetype of a human being. Why? Because his divine nature is the perfect human being. And this is so, ah, this is really important. The archetype is incorruptible. It's the ideal of all humanity. And what happens, the ideal becomes the judge. The ideal judges us. And therefore, Jesus is the ideal and the judge of all humanity. And this is why Peter, Acts chapter 10, says that God made Jesus the judge of the living and the dead. And this just If you open yourself up to set yourself next to the ideal, what happens? The ideal will cause you to see all of your cracks in your foundations. It can be very painful for people. When people have a crack in their foundation, they will hide that from themselves. They'll shove it down because it's too painful to look at. And many people, when they try to move towards God in in an earnest fashion, what happens is all of your... The cracks in your foundation are exposed. It hurts. God wants to heal it, and he can, but people will stop. This is so key. The ideal is the judge. And what's worse, and it, but it absolutely, it's the story of the Bible. 
is humanity wants to murder the ideal. That's what we do. One of the many faults of humanity. We murder the ideal. Why? Because the ideal judges us. We don't like to be judged. It's the story of the Bible. The first human beings, Cain and Abel, what happens? Abel is righteous. He's the ideal. And his brother hates him and murders him because he's judged by the ideal. You look at um, uh, the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis. He's an ideal. Everything he does is perfect. Drives his brothers nuts. They hate it because they, always, they recognize their own flaws because he's standing there. So what do they do? They try to kill him. And what happens to Jesus when he shows up? They try to kill him because it's exposing all the things that are wrong with, your, with yourself and you get angry at the person who's appearing to be the judge, so you hang him on a cross. This is what humanity does to the ideal. And anybody who's been successful can know what can happen when people come at you with daggers out because you're exposing in them. You're not doing anything, but it exposes in them all of their fault lines. They hate it. Shame. Too much shame, you get angry. Too much guilt, you get angry. Too much judging, you get angry, and you'll lash out. So it's really, this is the heavenly man, pure light, pre-exist creation. Everything through him. Now, those are, all, those are all Jewish thoughts, by the way. That's mystical Judaism. But you can see how it lines up with the text, right? Now, look at, turn to Colossians 1, 15 to 19. Listen to what Paul says. Now that you've got that idea, the Son is the image of the invisible God, isn't he? Isn't Jesus? He's the part of take God from the infinite, put him in the, in the finite, make, him, make an invisible God as, as an image, and what you get is the heavenly man. That's Christ. He's the firstborn over all creation because it's through him that everything is created. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers of authority, all things have been created through him and in him. It's exactly what my little model was showing you. And then if you go down to verse 19, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness from the infinite dwell in him in the finite. So God's fullness dwells in that heavenly man. This is amazing. And what's happening here, Jesus, this is what the the gospel writers, Paul is telling us, especially John. John does it in very creative ways. They're, they're telling us, they're presenting us that that heavenly man is right here. And when they go up on that mountain and he transfigures in front of you, and it's the revealing of the true nature of who he is, radiating light, his, his clothes turned into bright light like lightning. That's that heavenly man. Okay. Now I need to, I gave you another sheet here and we need to talk about it very quickly to help you understand. This is like kind of the final uh, nail in the coffin or whatever we would say. If you Google this, you'll find it. You'll find, uh, um, they're called the 10 sephirot or the 10 emanations and the, well, it's too... Too difficult to try to describe. Look it up. Ten sephirot or the ten emanations. So if you do an artistic representation of the, the, the sephirot, what you get is something like that. They will always draw it as a king with a crown or a man with a crown, right? So on your handout, you have something that looks like this. And that's going to overlay, and it's, vi it's very insightful about humanity as the image of humanity. But I want you to notice, this is, this is the, to, to talk about it with Jesus, I want you to notice the top one and then the bottom one. So at the top is a crown. And the, that actual sephirot is not really technically part of the um, heavenly man, but it tells you who he is. The Christ, the Christ, or the Messiah is a title. It tells you who he is. He's a king. Who's the king of king and, the, and lord of lords? 
That's exactly what our New Testament is telling us that Jesus is. And of course, we go down to the bottom, and what's at the base of it? But the kingdom of God. That the man who stands like this in the heaven is the one who stands as king over the kingdom. And that's exactly Jesus is Lord. Now, the more you can learn about even these ten sephirot, the more you can see how it starts to come out about what they're, uh, when, when you look at these different aspects. And if you want to be created in the image of that, then these are helpful for you to understand about yourself as well. Now, Jesus is the king, yes, and I want to show you something so cool because John, John's entire gospel, John's entire gospel is presenting Jesus as the word the Son, or the heavenly man. Now, John doesn't say heavenly man, he uses word. But it's the same thing, he's the king. He's the king who's going to restore the glory of the first Adam. And so, John 19.5, the reason that this is so important is, John tells us the story differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the soldiers, after Jesus is with Pilate, the soldiers take him, they place the crown and the purple robe, they bow down and hail him, and then they take it off and they lead him out for crucifixion. But John tells it differently. And when he does, it's, it's brilliant because there's a whole discussion between Pilate and Jesus about truth and about the king, and the crowd is saying, take him away, take him away. And then it says this, that Pilate led Jesus out Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe, and he's presenting him to the Jewish people. That's how John tells the story. So Jesus came out wearing the crown, and a purple robe is the, the robe of a king. So Pilate is presenting Jesus as the king, and then he says to him, which is so important, behold, that here is, is like a here is, you know, behold the man. Now, how do you say man in Hebrew? Adam. And it's so, it's brilliant what John is doing. He brings Jesus out in the crown as a king and says, ha-adam. Now, that's, he's, that's in Hebrew, but point is, here is the Adam, the glorious Adam. Yes? And John's gospel is all about the glory of Jesus. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. It takes some work, I understand it, to have eyes to see. That's part of the story of the transfiguration. Do we have eyes to see the reality of who Jesus is? It's just brilliant. Okay. Oh, by the way, John, right? He's telling you about Jesus as the ideal one. Ah, the heavenly man, he's the ideal, and he, by his very nature, is going to judge everybody in that audience, and they hate it. And so what do they do? They kill him. And that's the story of humanity. Okay, quick review. Heavenly man, first of all, we start with a paradox, right? We're starting with a problem. We're trying to, the, the mystics are attempting to solve a problem. God has no image, yet humanity is made in the image of God. And so now, how do we solve that? How do we solve an infinite God coming into an, a finite world? Well, they solved it with this intermediate, intermediary heavenly man. And I'm not saying intermediary like it's not, it's part of God. It's like the, just like that we, you know, it's so hard to understand what the Trinity is. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they're all of the same substance. It's like he's part of God, but it's the God, an infinite God moving into finite. So it's the heavenly man, the word. It's this right here, right? The, the, no image. We have image of God, and you have this giant space in between. And what shows up there? Well, to the mystics, it's right here. The heavenly man. And the heavenly man now becomes how you get image of God uh, for a human being. Then we looked at, and so this is where you want to confirm, is that what, is, would this be... Um, Something that would have been thought in the first century, yes. Philo of Alexandria. That's one place we can go. You can go to the Aramaic Targums, as long as we understand what's going on with those Targums. And then you get to the 
New Testament and John and Paul, and they're all confirming this to say, oh, well, or even maybe correcting Philo. It's not just an idea of Philo. He is in reality. He's the light of the world. Now, light, light, or the, the, the light of consciousness, and I believe it's light of consciousness. It's not just because we can't see Jesus, but using our spirit and conscience, having the light of consciousness, we understand that he's there. He's the light of the world. Okay, so that is the heavenly man, transfiguration, part four. Look, here's the deal, folks. If you made it this far, learning takes repetition, right? Repetition is the mother of all teaching. And just like if you've watched a movie the second or third time, you see things or hear things that you didn't see the first time around, please, please take the time. It will be worth it to go over this lesson again. Take a look at the articles that I put up. Maybe purchase one of the books that I have down in the recommended books. Truly will help you in the long run. And I guarantee you that God will honor your efforts and help you have a, a different understand a different aspect of Jesus through this transfiguration. <laughs>